Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? The Deadfall by Ted Hughes. I own a tiny ivory fox about an inch and a half long, most likely an Eskimo carving. It came to me in one of the strangest incidents of my life. My mother saw ghosts, now and again, different kinds. One night during the last war she woke, feeling dreadfully agitated. She lay for a while, feeling more and more agitated. At last, she got out of bed and, opening the curtains, saw an amazing sight. Across the street stood St. George's Church, and above the church the whole sky was throbbing with flashing crosses. As she told of it the next day, there were thousands on thousands, flashing and fading in and out, the whole sky covered with them, coming very thick like big snowflakes, hitting and breaking and melting on a warm window. She tried to wake my father. There's a most terrible battle somewhere, she told him. Thousands of boys are being killed. He heard what she said, but he wouldn't be roused. He had to get up at 5am anyway, as every morning. She went back to the window and watched for a long time, going to bed finally, only when she got too cold. Next day, the radio announced that the British and American armies had landed that night in northern France and were fighting their way inland through the German defences. Another time she was wakened by a sickening pain at the back of her neck and a terrific banging. Short, urgent bursts of banging, as if somebody were pounding hard on a door or hammering on a table. She couldn't tell where the noise came from. It shook this house, she said. Again, she got up and looked out of the window, but the street, which was the main street of the town, was deserted. She went downstairs, made herself a cup of tea, and sat with the pain. It felt, she said, like toothache, but in her neck. She couldn't tell how the banging stopped. Eventually, it just wasn't there anymore. But she still had the pain the next morning when the telegram came with the news of the violent death during the night of one of her brothers. She was ready for this news. She had known somebody in her family was going to die. And the moment she read the telegram, the pain went. Another time, while she was pushing a hoover round the sitting room mid-afternoon, her eldest brother walked in. She was alarmed since she knew that he was actually lying unable to move in a Halifax hospital. As she switched off the hoover to speak to him, he faded. She noted the time, guessing he had died that very moment. Again, she had known that one of her family was going to die. Each time she was warned in the same way. Among her seven or eight brothers and sisters, as a girl, her closest friends had been the sister closest to her in age, Miriam. This sister died when they were both in their late teens. A few months after her death, Miriam reappeared at night and sat on my mother's bed, just as in life, and held her hand. Without speaking, she seemed to be consoling my mother. Two days later, their baby brother died. After that, through the years, just before any member of her family died, Miriam would appear at my mother's bedside. But as the years passed, her ghost changed. She became brighter and taller. Gradually, said my mother, she's turned into an angel. By the time of that last occasion when their eldest brother died, Miriam had become a tall, glowing angel with folded wings. My mother described her as being made of flame, as if she were covered with many coloured feathers of soft, pouring flame. But it was still Miriam. And on this last visit, 
as she stood by the bed. My mother reached up a hand to stroke the flame because it was, as she said, so beautiful. The feel of it, she told us afterwards, was like the taste of honey. I remember her telling that the next day, as if it were only minutes ago. My brother and sister and I also wanted to see ghosts. We lived near Hebden Bridge in West Yorkshire in a village called Mythalmroyd. There the river runs in a deep valley under high horizons of empty moorland. On one side of that valley, in a steep wood of oak and birch trees, is an ancient grave. At least it was always known as a grave. We called it the Grave of the Ancient Britain. Great rough slab of stone. My brother, much older than me, sometimes tried to dig him up with the help of a few friends. I remember scraping away there on two or three occasions. The stone was embedded in a hole and far too big for us to leave her out. We tried to dig round it and under it, but the great slab simply settled deeper. My brother liked to camp out on the hillsides and would take me with him. Once, when he and I were camping down by the stream in that wood, not far from the grave, he got the idea of raising the ancient Britain's ghost. He must have already thought about it quite carefully because he was prepared, perhaps not very well prepared. He had brought half a bottle of sweet wine made from blackberries. One of our uncles concocted that sort of thing. This was to work the magic trick. He woke me in the middle of the night. I pulled on my boots and climbed through the woods behind him. I liked being in the woods at night. But by the time we got to the grave, I was nervous. I remember I didn't want him to go too near the grave. I thought something might grab him and pull him in. Then I would be alone in a dark wood, with my brother somewhere beneath me being dragged deeper into the earth. I didn't like that idea. He'd already made what he called the altar, a flat piece of stone near the grave's edge. Now he lit a fire over this stone. I saw he had firewood ready. In his preparations, he'd even emptied the charge out of some twelve-ball cartridges to make sure he got an instant flare-up blaze by lighting the loose explosive. That was a success. It lit up the tree trunks and the over-curving boughs in a great whoosh of light, as if they'd flung up their arms. Then it settled down to burn the twigs and sticks it piled in a wigwam shape. He was an expert firemaker, and in no time had a good blaze going. Now he stood up with his bottle of wine and carefully tipped it, letting a trickle spatter into the flames. The glow blackened and hissed as a pale cloud billowed up. He began to speak. Oh, ancient Britain, I am pouring out this redness to give life to you. Rise up, O oh, ancient Britain. All this is for you. Rise up and warm yourself. Rise up, O oh, ancient Britain, and quench your ancient thirst. I remember that, quench your ancient thirst, because that was the first time I ever felt the sensation of my hair freezing solid like a cap of ice, and I was suddenly afraid. I could see the ancient Briton, deep in the earth, with his corpse teeth bared. Probably his eyes had just flown open. I just knew he would come, and we wouldn't know what to do about it. What could my brother do when that thing started walking towards us? My brother was already backing towards me as if he'd seen something down there in the pit where the stone lay. As he came, he was still trickling wine out onto the tough, leathery grass of the wood. Then he set the bottle down, propped at an angle, still with some wine in it, halfway between me and the fire. 
and joined me. The fire had recovered. The blackberry wine seemed to have helped it. Perhaps he did other things that I hadn't noticed. We watched the flames and the huge caves of blackness between the tree trunks. Little sparks went writhing up in the reddened smoke. I stared hard to see a shape beyond them. I kept an eye on the bottle. I expected something. Maybe a dark lump like an animal would heave itself up out of the hole, or maybe a person would somehow be there, standing beside the grave, looking towards us. Or maybe we wouldn't see anything, but the bottle would suddenly rise up in the air and tilt as an invisible mouth drank at it. Then a shape would grow solid between us and the fire, with the bottle in its hand. But the worst thought was, if something did come, what would we do? We crouched there, watching the fire till the flames died. I asked in a whisper if he thought we should go back to the tent, but he hissed so sharp and tense I felt the hair prickle all over my body. He was staring towards the glow of the fire's embers. I tried to see what he was looking at. I thought I saw something, he whispered. I began to hear sounds in the wood, rustlings and tickings. I felt sleepy. Surely the fire had gone out now. He got up at last and walked over to it. I followed him to stay close. He picked up the bottle and poured the last drops onto the fire's remains. He turned the altar over with his foot. Nothing had happened. My little ivory fox came the following summer. This time we were camping in the valley known as Crimsworth Dean. Our father and mother had both been born in Hebden Bridge. Their paradise had been the deep, cliffy, dead-end gorge of Hardcastle Crags, which cuts back northwest into the moors from Hebden Bridge, full of trees with a rocky river. The big old mill building still standing there, well up the gorge, was used as a dance hall in those days, where all the boys and girls of Hebden Bridge did their courting. Nowadays, this place is a famous beauty spot. More than once, people from Hebden Bridge, on holiday in Blackpool or Morecambe, have purchased a bus ticket for a day's mystery tour to a beauty spot and have been brought back to Hardcastle Crags. Crimsworth Dean is a more secret valley that forks away due north from the bottom of Hardcastle Crags. Like all these valleys, Crimsworth Dean is a steep-sided, deep, with woods overhanging, stone-walled, falling-away fields. And above the woods, more stone-walled fields, climbing to a farm or two. And above the farms, the moors, the empty prairies of heather that roll away north into Scotland. And in the very bottom of the valley, the dark, deep cleft, thick with beech, oak, sycamore, plunging to an invisible stream. On the west slope, an old stony pack-horse road clambers north between dry stone walls, under the hanging woods and above the lower fields, finally up and out across the moor towards Haworth. About a mile up that road, on the left, under the trees and over the roadway, is a little level clearing. Perhaps it was once a quarry for the stone of the local walls. Here, when they were boys, before the First World War, my mother's brothers used to camp. They called Crimsworth Dean the Happy Valley. The strangest thing that ever happened to me happened there. One week my brother decided to camp there. Though it was right in the heart of the territory that belonged, as I felt, to our mother and father, it was a little outside ours. 
But our uncles knew the farmers, and they had given my brother permission to shoot rabbits and magpies and such like. Now and again, he did roam this far with his rifle, but only rarely and briefly. For me, though I had always known Hardcastle Crags, it was the first time I had ever entered Crimsworth Dean. I was still quite young, only seven. As we pitched our tent on the Friday evening, on that little clearing, under the trees, I knew this was the most magical place I had ever been in. The air was very still, and the sky clear after a warm day. All down the valley, over the great spilling mounds of foxgloves, grey columns of midges hung in the stillness, like vertical smoke above campfires. I brought water up from the stream in our rope-handled canvas bucket, and collected dead sticks for firewood, while he sorted our bedding, the pans and cutlery, and made a fireplace with stones. All the while a bird sang on the very topmost twig of a tree over the clearing. I had never heard a bird like it, nor have I since. It was a thrush, I expect, but every note echoed through the whole valley. I felt I had to talk in whispers. Even so, I thought each word we spoke would be heard in Peckett, away out of sight around the hill's shoulder, a mile or more away. My brother got a fire going and warmed up our beans. Camping is mainly about campfires, food cooked on campfires, and going to sleep in a tent, and getting up in the wet dawn. We planned to get up at dawn, maybe before dawn, when the rabbits would be dopey, bobbing about in the long, dewy grass. Our precious, beautiful thing, my brother's gleaming American rifle, lay in the tent on a blanket. As it grew dark, I kept hearing a tune in my head, and the words of the song. It came to me whenever I looked down over the deep grass of the steep field below us towards that plunge of dark trees. Very clear I heard, If you go down to the woods today, you're sure of a big surprise. And the strange tune of that song, which sounds like a bear romping through a gloomy forest, as I lay on my ground sheet, under my blanket at last, looking up at the taut canvas of our ex-army belt tent and listening to the stars and the huge, silent breathing of the valley, I felt happier than I had ever been, and wider awake than I had ever been. Even so, I went straight off to sleep. I woke in the dark, thinking it must be time to get up. I lay, listening for night creatures. After a long time I began to hear cock crows and the tent walls began to pale. My brother woke and, without breakfast, we were off. Dark tracks of rabbits were everywhere in the white of the heavy dew. I looked at the tracks quite close around our tent. Why hadn't I heard whatever made them? What had made them? Rabbits or something else? Usually one rabbit was all we could expect to shoot, but because this was new hunting ground, and because the place seemed so magically wild, secret and undisturbed, I was hoping for a record bag. We saw hardly a rabbit, only the odd white tail far off, just glimpsed, then gone. The sun rose, the dew glittered and dried. We tramped all over the hillside, up as far as the moor. We skulked along the edges of woods, peering over walls. We had to inspect every tiny thing. It might be a snipe or the lifted head of a grouse strayed down off the high ground. But my brother did not fire one shot. For the last part of the morning we stretched out in the heather, and he sunbathed. But then, 
Coming back to our camp for breakfast at midday, we found something curious. The wall along the top of the wood, directly above our camp, had a tumble-down gap. As we came down through that gap, my brother pointed. Under the wall, on the wood side, a big flat stone like a flagstone, big as a big gravestone, leaned outwards, on end. It was supported, I saw, by a man-made contraption of slender sticks. Tucked in behind the sticks, under the leaning slab, lay a dead wood pigeon, its breast torn, showing the dark meat. Gamekeeper's deadfall, said my brother. It was the first deadfall I'd ever seen. I'd read about them, made of massive tree trunks, used by trappers in the Canadian forests for bears, wolves, wolverines. My brother explained how it worked. How one light touch on the trip stick would collapse a support and bring the great stone slam down flat on top of whatever was under it. I went past it warily. I didn't want the jolt of my tread to bring it down. Pigeon's fresh, said my brother. He must have baited it yesterday, or maybe this morning, for a fox, probably. We hadn't seen the gamekeeper who looked after Lord Saville's grouse upon the moor. He only became a danger if you'd shot some of his grouse, and this time we hadn't. Still, we kept a sharp lookout for him. A gamekeeper usually sees you first, and the moment he sees you, he becomes invisible until he's right on top of you. In the afternoon, we went back up onto the heather. My brother was mad about sunbathing. He rubbed himself with olive oil and lay there frying. I lay for a while, but I wasn't mad about the sun. I left that to him. Eventually, I found a trickle of water that overflowed an old drinking trough and spent the afternoon making dams and channels. Rabbits usually come out again about four o'clock, but still we had no luck. Somehow, in spite of all those tracks in the early dew, and in spite of the silent, lonely emptiness of the valley, rabbits seemed to know better than to show themselves in the day. We ended up drinking tea at a farmhouse where the farmer said his old mother, who made the tea, then sat watching us from a rocking chair in the corner, was some remote cousin of our grandmother. After that, he wanted us to shoot a particular rat. This rat was stealing eggs, according to him. Its front doorway was a crevice under the threshold of an old stable. Every evening he saw it, but he was far too smart to be trapped. He gave us two addled eggs that we propped up very visible three yards in front of its hole. Then we climbed to a hayloft and lay looking down at both eggs and rat hole through the open loft door. We lay there, unmoving on the warm boards, with our eyes on that hole, till the light began to fail. Maybe the rat was watching us from inside his hole, but he never appeared. I became impatient, thinking of the rabbits we were missing. They were probably out all over the place. I wanted to take home at least one. Finally, my brother gave in, and we went back down over the fields from the high farm to our camp. We saw rabbits, but it was too dark now to see the sights of the rifle. Anyway, I found I was more interested in getting to the gap in the wall. I couldn't wait to see the trap. I imagined a great red fox in its squashed flat, or maybe a stoat. A stoat would easily trip those frail balanced sticks, or, or maybe even a crow, a stoat might leap clear. But it yawned there just as we'd left it, and the wood pigeon lay untouched. My idea of the valley was changing. I'd thought of it teeming with stoats, weasels, foxes, as well as rabbits, 
But here, as everywhere else, perhaps the gamekeepers and the poultry farmers were in control. Even crows. I hadn't seen a crow. I hadn't seen a magpie. A magpie would have found that wood pigeon anywhere in the valley. But the gamekeeper had set the trap, so there must be something. Maybe, as my brother said, there was a fox, a lone fox, a notorious solitary bandit with his hideout in this wood near our camp. Among rocks, maybe, where he couldn't be dug out, and maybe tomorrow morning he'd be there, flat under the fallen slab. Or she, he might be a vixen. The evening was as still as the night before. As we fried eggs and bacon and our pork and beans to go with them, the magical spell came over me again. The thought of a fox very near, deep in his den, maybe smelling our bacon, made everything more mysterious. I kept looking down through the dusk into the crevasse of dark trees below to give myself the eerie feeling of that tune again and the strange words, If you go down to the woods today, you're sure of a big surprise. Never failed. As the valley grew darker, the feeling with its bear coming up through the forest grew even stronger. I found that whenever I looked down there and thought of that tune, I could make myself shiver and freeze. I could do it again and again, first looking away, then looking back down there and hearing the tune. Each time I would shiver and freeze afresh. I kept testing myself to see if it would go on happening, like touching myself with an electric spark. And every time it happened. The fox would be smelling our bacon all right, and our coffee. We always brewed coffee in the dusk. That was the part I liked best of all, sitting there, gazing into the fire and sipping sweet, scalding coffee, while the thick sticks crumbled to a cave of glow, whitening the hearthstones. Maybe those tracks in the dew last night had been the fox, inspecting us and our fireplace, and looking for leftovers. Again we planned to get up early. Sometime tomorrow, Sunday, we would have to set off back home. My brother wanted to bag something as badly as I did. He was regretting wasting time on the rat. That night I tried to stay awake so I could have every minute of lying there under my blanket listening. Each tiny sound had to be something. I could hear the stream down in the bottom. Why hadn't I heard that the night before? Would I hear a fox if he came right up to the tent wall and sniffed at me through the canvas? At some point... I drifted off to sleep because when I woke I thought it was dawn. Then I realised that the pale light coming through the canvas was moonlight. I was absolutely alert and tense. Something had wakened me. I lay there hardly daring to breathe. Then I heard a whisper, a low hiss of a whisper outside the tent. It was calling my name. Somebody was out there. Beside me, fast asleep, my brother was breathing gently. I simply listened. I don't know what I thought. I felt no fear, but still I was amazed to feel the tears trickling slowly down over my ears as I lay staring upwards. The whisper came again. My name. It seemed to be coming from about where the fox was. Very carefully, partly not to waken my brother, partly not to let the voice know I was listening, I sat up, leaned forward, 
and tried to peep through the laced-up door of the tent. By holding the edges of the flaps slightly open, I could see a tiny dot of red glow still in our fireplace. Everything out there was drenched in a grey, misty light. Somebody was standing beside the fireplace. It was a person, and yet I got the impression it was somehow not a person. Or it was a very small person. It looked like a small old woman, with a peculiar bonnet on her head and a long shawl. That was my impression. As I stared with all my might, trying to make out something definite, this figure drifted backwards into the shade of the trees. But the whisper came again. Come out, quickly. There's been an accident. I immediately knew it must be somebody from the farm. Surely it was the farmer's little old mother. That was how she knew we were here. The farmer had fallen down a well or, or down a loft ladder or a mad carving coward gored him and crushed his ribs or he'd simply tumbled downstairs going to get his old mother a cup of tea because she couldn't sleep. Something stopped me waking my brother. What I really wanted was to find out more. Who was this person? What was the accident? Anyway, it was my name that had been called. It must be me that was specially needed. I could come back and tell my brother later. Most of all, I wanted to see who this was. I'd gone to sleep in my clothes to keep warm and for a quick start, so now I pulled on my boots. I unlaced the tent door at the bottom and crawled out. The grass was cold and soaking under my hands. Hurry, came the whisper from the trees. Hurry, hurry. It seemed strange that I felt no fear. I was so sure that it was somebody from the farm that I thought of no other possibility, only huge curiosity and excitement. Also, I felt quite important, suddenly. I went towards the voice, staring into the dark shade. The moon was past full but very hard and white. I wanted to get into the shade quickly, where I wouldn't be so visible. But now the voice came again, from further up the wood. Yes, the voice was climbing towards the farm. Hurry, it kept saying. Hurry up. Beneath the trees, the slope was clear and grassy without brambles or undergrowth. Easy going but steep with that tough, slippery grass. As I climbed, the voice went ahead. Very soon I could see through the top of the wood. The bright night sky was piled with brilliant masses of snowy cloud beyond the dark tree stems. I glimpsed the black silhouette now and again, the funny bonnet climbing ahead, bobbing between the trees. Are you coming? came the whisper again. This way. I saw her shape in the gap of the wall, clear against those snowy clouds. Then... She had gone through it. It was now, as I came up towards the gap, sometimes grasping tussocks to help myself upwards, that I saw something else bouncing and scrabbling under the wall in a clear patch of moonlight. At first I thought it was a rabbit, just this moment scared into a snare by our approach, now leaping and flinging itself to be free, but tethered by the pegged snare. It was the size of a rabbit. Then I smelt the rich, powerful smell. With a shock, I remembered I had come right up to the deadfall. The great slab of stone had fallen. Beside it sat a well-grown fox cub, staring at me, panting. As I took this in, the cub suddenly started again, tugging and bouncing, jerking and scrabbling, without a sound, till again it crouched there, staring up at me, its mouth wide open, its tongue dangling and panting. I could see now that it was trapped by one hind leg and its tail. They were pinned to the ground under the corner of the big slab. 
The smell was overpowering, thick, choking, almost liquid, as if concentrated liquid scent had been poured over me, saturating my clothes and hands. I knew the smell of fox, the overpowering smell of frightened fox. Then I looked up and saw the figure out there in the field, only five yards away, watching me. More than ever I could see it was a little old woman, with her very thin legs and her funny bonnet and shawl. She didn't seem to be wanting me to go to the farm. She had brought me to this fox cub. She was probably some eccentric old lady who never slept or slept only by day and spent the night roaming the hillsides, talking to owls and befriending foxes. She would have seen our camp. Probably some of those tracks had been hers, brushed through the dew around our tent. Now she'd found the trapped cub, and not being strong enough to lift the slab, she'd come to us. She wanted me to lift the slab and free the cub. She had not called my brother because she thought he might kill it. She must have watched us and heard him speak my name. My first thought was to catch the cub and keep it alive. But how could I hold it and at the same time lift the slab? It was a desperate, ferocious little thing. I could have wrapped it in my jersey, knotting the arms around it, but I didn't think of that. As I put my fingers under the corner of the slab, the cub snapped its teeth at me and hissed like a cat, then struggled again, jerking to free itself. With all my strength, I was just able to budge the slab a fraction, but it was enough. As the slab shifted, the cub scrabbled and was gone, off down the wood like a rocket. I looked up at the old lady, and this was my next surprise. The bare, close-cropped, moonlit field was empty. I walked out to where she'd been, the whole wide field under the great bare sky of moonlight, all made much brighter by that bulging heap of snowy, silvery clouds, was empty. Not even a sheep. Absolutely nothing. She couldn't have run away. I'd looked down for only a few seconds. She'd simply gone. I could see every blade of grass where she had stood, the field wall, the trees of the wood, the hilltops above and beyond. I came back to the deadfall. Now I saw that it lay at a slight tilt. There was something beneath it, another cub maybe. I tried again to lift it, but I still couldn't budge it more than that quarter inch and only for a second. I couldn't possibly lift it. It was as I came back down to our campsite that I saw somebody standing outside the tent in the moonlight. I stopped, hidden under the trees. With a sudden, terrible thought, I remembered the ancient Britain, and now, for the first time, I really was frightened. But then I heard my name called in the familiar low voice. It was my brother. He'd come out of the tent, and now he'd heard me. Where have you been? I I told him what had happened. All he said was, we'll have a look in the morning. Come and get back to sleep. But I lay awake. The tent darkened and became pitch black. Either the moon had gone down or that cloud had come up and covered it. Then I heard the prickling sound of light rain on the canvas. The rain grew heavier and soon it was filling the whole world like a steady tearing of canvas inside my head. A drop hit my face. Slowly the canvas paled. I heard cocks crowing in the high farms and dozed off. Next thing I smelled bacon. The rain had stopped. It was day. Come on, let's eat everything, called my brother. I wanted to see the deadfall, but he would not be hurried. 
We scoured our pans and dishes with grit and water and bundled them into their bag. They began to take down the wet tent. In a few minutes, everything was inside the bulging kit bag. The rain had come back by now, but more of a drizzle. It looked to be setting in for the day. The shooting trip was over, I could see. But now he took his rifle from under the tree where he'd leaned it in the dry with the bag over its muzzle and started off up into the wood. The deadfall lay as I had left it. He handed the rifle to me, put his fingers under the slab and heaved it back against the wall. There, at our feet, lay a big red fox, quite dead, the wood pigeon still in its mouth. He pulled it clear and inspected it. The body was stiff. He picked it up by one hind leg. A foreleg stuck out at an angle. Its head was twisted to one side, keeping its grip on the dead bird. Only the tail plumed over, like a fern. I'd expected to see whatever was under there flattened like a rat on the road. It did look slightly flattened. Its fur was flattened. Still carrying the dead animal by the one hind leg, my brother took the rifle from me and started off down the wood. But then he turned back, handed me the rifle again, and pulled the deadfall slab over. It dropped with a shocking thud into its position. I felt the earth bounce. This fox escaped, he said. Down at our campsite he brought out our little axe. I asked him what we were going to do with the fox. Wasn't it the gamekeepers? I remember his answer. This fox belongs to itself. Then he began to dig a hole with the axe in the middle of the patch of grass flattened by our tent. He cut out the turf and set it aside, then hacked downwards, scooping the loosened soil out with his hands till he began to hit stones. The hole was about two feet deep. He jabbed about down there with a sharpened stick, dislodging stones and shaping the bottom of the hole. I crouched beside the work, watching the hole and looking at the fox. I had never examined a fox. It was so astonishing to see it there, so real, so near. When I lifted its eyelid, the eye looked at me, very bright and alive. I closed it gently and stroked it quite shut. Its face was slightly squashed-looking, but with no visible damage, no blood and so peculiar, with the wood pigeon gripped in its mouth. My brother picked it up again. Do you want its tail? he asked me. I shook my head. He fitted it neatly into the bottom of the hole and arranged it, bending the stiff, jutting foreleg to look more comfortable. We took the little stones around it and covered it with the gritty black soil, then the turfs. He took out some of the soil and threw it away to let the turfs lie flat. I helped him push loose soil out of sight down between the sliced turfs. As I was doing this, I felt a knobbly pebble and saw under my fingers what looked like one of those white quartz pebbles you find embedded in the black boulders on the moor. But then I realised it was not a pebble. I stood up to examine it. I could not believe what I had in my hands. It was this little ivory fox. I was so startled that I simply gripped it. Maybe I thought my brother might take it off me. What's wrong? he asked, looking up. He never missed anything. But I managed to shift my inspection to the back of my fingers. I got my find into my pocket and bent again to the grave. He was combing the grass of the turfs with his fingers, drawing it over the edges to make it look like unbroken sod again. When he'd finished, you couldn't really tell it was there, even from quite close. Everything looked like the scuffed and trampled patch where a tent has been. As I stood there, I could feel him watching me. You are right, he asked. 
We had to walk down to Hebden Bridge in the drizzle to catch a bus home. He carried the kit bag, I carried the rifle. He had not fired one shot. It was while we were waiting at the bus stop that he asked me who I thought the old woman was last night. Well, I said, it must have been just some old woman. But you said she vanished. She did. One second she was there, and the next she wasn't. Do you think, he said, it might have been the dead fox's ghost? So it was there, standing at the bus stop in Hebden Bridge, that I first had to wonder whether I'd seen a ghost. I didn't know what to think about it. But two or three times since then, I have seen what seemed to be a ghost, and I know that as soon as the moments passed, you don't know what to think about it. I didn't know what to think about the little ivory fox either, the the fox in my pocket. Who could have dropped it where I found it? One of our uncles long ago? Obviously, when a thing's dropped like that, it doesn't vanish into the never-never. It has to stay right there. So this fox could have been there long before our uncles. Long, long, long before. Like the stones. What made me feel slightly giddy was the way I'd found it while we're actually burying the fox. I didn't know what to make of any of it. I could not see any way past it. When I thought about it, I felt a ring tightening round my head. But there was the ivory fox in my pocket, so smooth and perfect. And after all these years, here it is, just as I found it. And I still do not know what to make of it. Or of that old lady either, if it was an old lady. Later that year we moved away to another part of Yorkshire. I did not walk up Crimsworth Dean again to look at the fox's grave for many, many years. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? So that was The Dead Fall by Ted Hughes from his collected stories called Fantastically Difficulties of a Bridegroom. So how we've got that story is that Gavin Critchley, who is a great sponsor of this um, podcast, had come to meet me on a sunny day in Carlisle and he handed me a book, this book, uh, The Difficulties of a Bridegroom, which he says is a US version. I don't know whether he said he got it in the US. Uh, by Ted Hughes, obviously, who was poet laureate of England uh, at that at the time, and he wrote the, the book was published anyway. So, um, and it's his generosity; he's actually funded this. So, again, if you could just thank Gavin for allowing me to uh, for a couple of things. First of all, allowing me to do it, and secondly, suggesting the story. It was his suggestion. I probably wouldn't have found it myself, although I do like Ted Hughes's poetry. Um, great nature poet, but and also um, not. Um, a fancy pants nature poet. Listen, a lot of nature poets are great. You know, um, I think of Edward Thomas and R.S. Thomas and people like that. Lots of English, uh, R.S. Thomas was Welsh, of course. Anyway, let me tell you something about Ted, as I like to call him. Uh, so Ted Hughes, born 1930, died 1998, was an English poet and writer who is widely regarded as one of the most important and influential poets of the 20th century. He was born on August 17th, 1930, Mythalmroyd, Yorkshire, England. Hughes had a deep connection with nature from an early age, which played a significant role in his poetry. He attended Mexborough Grammar School and later won a scholarship to study English at Pembroke College, Cambridge. During his time at Cambridge, he met fellow poet Sylvia Plath, whom he married in 1956. 
In 57, Hughes's first collection of poetry, The Hawk in the Rain, was published to critical acclaim. I still have a copy of that, which I got in about 1979, to be honest. Um... On my bookshelf, the collection established him as a major poetic voice and set the tone for his subsequent work. His poetry was often marked by its visceral and powerful imagery, exploring themes of nature, myth and the human experience. We see all those there, don't we? Hughes and Plath had two children together before their marriage ended in separation in 1962 and later in divorce in 63. Tragically, Plath took her own life in 63. The events surrounding the relationship and Plath's suicide deeply affected Hughes became a central theme in his work. Hughes served as the Poet Laureate of the United Kingdom. It says England on the book. I think it is of England from 1984 until his death in 1998. Throughout his career, he published numerous collections of poetry, including Wodwo, 1967, Crow, 1970, and Birthday Letters, 1998, which explored his relationship with Plath. His work often drew inspiration from mythology, folklore, and the natural world, and he held a distinctive and powerful voice that resonated with readers and fellow poets. In addition to his poetry, Hughes also wrote plays, prose, and children's literature. His most famous children's book is The Iron Man, 1968, which has been adapted into various forms, including a stage play, an animated film. Ted Hughes received numerous awards and honours for his work, including the Queen's Gold Medal for Poetry in 1974 and the T.S. Eliot Prize for Poetry in 1998. His contribution to English literature continues to be celebrated and his poetry remains influential to this day. Sadly, Ted Hughes passed away on October 28th, 1998 in London, England, etc., etc. So this this collection, um, Difficulties of a Bridegroom, and if you've been a bridegroom, you'll have some knowledge or inkling into what those difficulties might be. And if you've never been a bridegroom, I'm sure you can guess. So... Um, this this collection um, was published in 1995, and he he actually has a really interesting introduction, and he explores some of the things we set out. But these are in his own words. There's a coffee stain on this that Gavin will remember because we're sitting out there, and he kindly carried the tray, but the coffee slopped over. I want to read the beginning of this because um, this is uh, Ted's own word. Ted, I call him. I was so familiar with him. These, he's older than my mother, you know, he's my my parents' generation. These, my, anyway, never mind. These nine pieces hang together in my own mind, this is Ted speaking, not me, as an accompaniment to my poems, The Fable, O Kelly's Angel, came first, written during the year I left university, 1954, as a joke of sorts about Terence McCaughey, my closest friend through those college years, who did later become, just as in my story, a professor of ancient Irish at Trinity College, Dublin, the point of the joke was to put a Protestant Presbyterian Ulsterman at the head of a Catholic fundamentalist army. Blah, blah. Snow came in 56. We haven't read these. The Return, the Rain Horse. He says something in 1961. He wrote The Wound. Of course, this is another story we haven't read. But he says, interestingly, for two or three months that spring, I was absorbed in making an oratorio of the Bardo Thodol, the, possibly I haven't pronounced that right, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, for the American-Chinese composer Chu Weng Chung. My completion of the, my first draft coincided with a peculiar dream. The dream... So this is a man who takes um, it seriously, and he says his Bardo Thodol was a Gothic Celtic version. And and he talks about um, the occasion of a person from Pollock appointment to go with a friend to watch a case at the Old Bailey and he makes notes about the dream. And so this is a guy who takes his 
dreams and he's and and clearly synchronicities seriously so he says this story that we've just read 1990 was written in 1993 michael Mopurgo asked me for a ghost story perhaps suitable for children to be part of an anthology of ghost stories set in various locations belonging to the national trust by chance an early experience of my own filled the requirements and i wrote it out with a few adjustments to what i remember as the deadfall so <clears throat> what do i want to say about that i don't know if you know his poem the thought fox I've got a, a sister channel which I don't do much with this these days called the classic ghost story nah, nah, the classic poetry podcast and if you if you're on YouTube you can look at the bottom and it's one of those that's listed there to click on the classic poetry podcast one of mine so you get a link through because believe me YouTube doesn't let if you search for the classic poetry podcast Tony Walker you don't find anything can you believe that they've pushed me into obscurity can you believe it but anyway I've got a link because I'm not going down without a fight so another thought that association, of course, Japanese stories about foxes. Clearly, the fox was very important to Ted Hughes and maybe considered his totem animal. I just checked what the Celtic tribe or the tribal people in that area were. And they were the Brigantes, the high ones. And so I was hoping they would be like um, fox people, although the word Seanach in Irish is fox. And in Welsh, it's um, Llwynog, he who lives in a bush, or Madryn, which is an old, old word, or Cadno in South Wales. Now, the, the, because there's so many of them, one thing you find is that they usually refer to taboo animals. So because an animal is taboo, you can't call it by its name. So dog is dog. Dog's probably never been taboo. And in European languages, hound and um, chien, and not perro, but uh, uh, that, that carne, you know, the, the Latinate uh, version and key and coo, they're 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 all cognate. They're all related because we kept the Indo-European word. But when we get lots and lots of other little, not little, but variant words, then that is a suggestion that the animal was taboo and you couldn't refer to it by its proper name. So you you called it by a circumlocution. So for example, um, one word for the wolf in Irish is magnetira, uh, so son of the land. You couldn't call it wolf. And um, in Welsh, uh, hair is known as squarnog, he with the ears. So you ha you can't call it by its name. So I was wondering, and I don't think it is true, that if, if the Brigantes, which are a huge tribe and possibly an over, um, they're recorded. We have a, just a snapshot when the Romans came and Ptolemy was a Greek uh, geographer just before that. You know, oh God, the time, I think, just after the Romans had come. He, um, he mapped where the tribal areas were. But one thing we must say is he wasn't completely accurate because he just had the Brigantes of what is now the north of England, whereas probably they may have, been, they may have originated the Benicia, Brunach in Northumberland, um, um, which carries their name probably, although Kenneth Jackson disagreed with that. But in my own area, they, there was no mention of a tribe called the Karawetti, Karawetti, probably like that. Uh, which means deer people. Often they were af they were named after animals. So we have the Epidi on the Kintyre Peninsula, who were the horse people. The Orcadi up in the Orkneys, who were the pig people. So you have a lot of that um, tribal totems. Now the point being that the, the Ptolemy and the Romans never recorded the existence of the in documents of the Carveti, at least that have survived. But we found inscriptions on monuments which show that this was the Republic of the Carveti, you know. So 
my totem, my my tribal totem, going back a long way, but still none the nonetheless authentic for that is the deer. So I had hoped, although this is a big digression, that Ted Hughes's was the fox, but I think it personally was his totem animal. He was he had a lot to think about foxes. So first of all, when we, not first of all, but second of all, or third of all, or fourth of all, we jump to Japan. And we have in Japanese folklore the kitsune who were foxes that possess paranormal activities that increase as they get older and wiser. They can shapeshift. So the fox is a really important in Japanese. I'm not suggesting any uh, connection culturally with um, West Yorkshire. I'm simply drawing on that. And of course, there's the Inari Okami, who's the uh, who's the grain goddess, who's a sh- who's a, a, a fox. And I remember. When, we, when me and my girls went to Japan, walking up a hill under all these red arch shrines to, um, to, to Inari's shrine up there in Kyoto on a very, very hot day and stopping for ice cream halfway up. It was gr- wonderful, really. And one of the things that I really like about that, as with India, is that these, there is a, a real, they're alive. The, these beliefs are alive. They're not kind of in a way like um, the... Uh, again, never want to offend anybody, but the neo-pagan movements in the UK and Europe and America, I wonder whether people really believe in them. You know, do they really... But Some people will believe in the reality of the horned god or the great mother, you know. Do they believe in that? Because at the time of the tribal people in this country and across Europe, um, they would be believed in as real, you know, whereas now we have a kind of a knowing what they call it, ironic. We know it's not true, but we, we take some pleasure into believing it's true kind of view. I don't I don't actually believe they're real. Do I believe they're real? Oh, God. Yeah, maybe a little bit, yeah. On the grounds that if you believe enough in something, it can make it true. I mean, like the mortgage rate, let's face it. You, you know, there is no real such thing as that. The interest rate, it's not real, but we believe it and we treat it as if it's real, so it becomes real. And, and in a funny way, you may think I'm being flippant here, but I'm not completely being flippant. I believe there's some truth in that so um let's look at the story though you first of all have it introduces how he's and i think these are real real um he hints there that these are real things so his mother saw ghosts uh, he didn't see ghosts but his mother saw ghosts well you know i i have members of my family who see ghosts i don't see ghosts um but uh, but they have a, these experiences which are and i'm colorblind so i don't see green you know so so who am i to say that isn't real what you see they go with green i go no green is made up there is no such thing. I do actually say this to them. I say things like green and brown are the same color. Purple and blue are the same color. Basically, gray, blue and green are the same color. And you, you, un colorblind people, you are just winding me up with this. In fact, you're oppressing me. And so I play oppression bingo. Now, I haven't got many things I can get in oppression bingo being straight, white, old, from, you know, uh, an industrialised country. I'm like the bottom of the pile, so I've got to have something. So I play the colourblind card, also the ADHD card sometimes. Um, it doesn't get me very far, to be fair. Um, people just, they go, yes, call that oppression, mate, call that oppression, and then they reel out their own oppression bingo cards, of which most of them have got loads more than me. So he sets up the ghosts, his mother can see it, you think it's incidental. You think he's just rambling, but he's not. That actually setting the theme, the ghosts, that he doesn't normally see. And he says, I wanted to see ghosts. And they do the, the ancient Britain 
to prove that they wanted to see ghosts. That's probably also a memory. But it's used, it's used skillfully because actually he does see a ghost, you know. He sets it up how he, much he wants to see a ghost, how much him and his brother tried to see it, and then boom, there's a ghost. Mm. Very interesting. And that's why I came with the Kitsune, really, in the shape-shifting, that the ghost of the fox is an old woman. And this old woman has a resonance with the old woman who sits in the farmhouse watching them, who is related to them. Yeah, that isn't. That, I don't think that's incidental either. The f it is tying him in, and the whole issue here is how tied in he is with the land, the landscape, the wildlife, the stones, the grass, the turf, the farmers. Um, he is embedded in that. He arises from it, and and this is a an homage to that. Um, rootedness in that particular piece of soil where he has family connections, but on, but also apparently, if the old woman is the ghost, which you know, you know, it, it, she may not actually be the ghost in the story, but there is a resonance there which may, pops up in our mind to suggest that she has connections with the fox's ghost. And the fox, I mean, you know, Ted Hughes would have known about Kitsune, um, is, is you know, a shapeshifting old lady. Mm. And what she wants there, of course, is is a lovely another subplot, is the old lady wants, as if the old lady is the dead fox, she wants him, the little boy, to rescue another little boy, a fox cub. And then we have the story of them, which is a great, um, the bulk of the story before, before the, we set up the deadfall, he explains the deadfall, explains the gamekeeper, and he's not condemnatory of the gamekeeper either. There's no condemnation of that. That is an acceptance of how things are, which I may come to, I may say something about vegetarianism um, at the end of it, uh, of this ramble. But um, it's, there's no acceptance of it. The fox eats dead pigeons. The pigeon dies. Okay, the gamekeeper killed it, but the fox would have killed it, you know. And, um, and they are prepared to shoot rabbits and shoot rats. The rats steal the eggs, which would have become chicks. And and so we get this idea of, and, and this is what he's famous for, this is not a varnished Disney version of Snow White with all little rabbits and Thumper, which is rather cute, actually, um, dancing around. This is the real world whereby things kill things. And because if they don't kill things, they die themselves. So I think that's his um, gift. But in that... And I, listen, I don't know much about Native Americans, but I believe I read that, um, you know, before they went hunting, and I believe in Africa too, um, they would they would say a prayer for the... for the uh, and, and you've got those cave paintings in France which appear to be kind of, and we don't know, prayers to the animal spirits to say, we, you know, we take your life in order to that we may live, but we are grateful and we are respectful. Of that, and I think possibly that may be—I don't know—I'm not sitting with him, but that may be his message that you know that that this is inevitable, but it is to be done with reverence, and the reverence that they have the two boys and his his brother is portrayed as somebody who might kill the fox if he found it. That's why he was called. But the brother buries the fox with great reverence, and uh, and then you know this fox escaped. Now, what does that mean? He's cheated the, the gamekeeper, perhaps. He offers the tale, so he's not too sentimental about it, but he, but he has, again, I think, this reverence for the, for the, and, and respect 
for for the life of a fellow creature. Um, so it's a, it's a wonderful story. Um, <clears throat> let's say something about vegetarianism. Am I a vegetarian? I'm not. Why am I not? Well, let's, let me tell you about my daughters to to buy some points. This is not oppression bingo. This is another kind of bingo. I haven't worked out the name for it. But it's about virtue points, isn't it? And you can get them vicariously. So I'll get them. So, so my, my both my daughters are vegetarians, and certainly Catherine has been for, she's 26, 27. And um, she's been a vegetarian for 12 years, and Imogen has been probably 10 years. And so they, and they are quite critical of me when I eat meat. I remember working in the 1990s, along with Dee Doody and Mushroom Steve and Yolo Williams is on TV, uh, and um, we would go and um, put camp... We, not Yolo particularly, but me and Dee and Mushroom Steve would go and put cameras on birds' nests. In fact, Dee and Steve climbed the trees. I was the project manager, so you can imagine. I, did, I loved going out with them. I carried a lot of flipping heavy machinery up flipping hills the batteries and wind turbines and solar panels and microwave transmitters for the for the camera but um so you know a bit, a bit more virtue points so anyway this is about vegetarianism we, we were we were we were on birds of prey so we were goshawks buzzards um kites um do we have any on ravens we had some little birds as well but but these things eat things and it struck me that Unless you can even talk about Jain, Jainism possibly is is the exception to this. But if you don't eat another living thing, you will die. Um, there is there's nothing we can consume that hasn't been alive. Try living on stones. This was my justification for it. I know there's fa factory farming, which is a, which is, a, is another counter argument. But say I was going out hunting on my own, would I be prepared? to kill something, to eat it. Well, if I was hungry enough, but I don't have to do that. So that's a cop-out, and it's not morally... It is slightly morally indefensible. So I'm I'm saying, you know, I'm okay to eat meat as long as somebody else kills it for me. And then I have a sentimental side to me when I look on and see the oh, lovely cow in a field, look at the lambs. And, you know, if I was really solid about this, I'd go, yeah, well, you know, I'm going to eat them. I do look at them and know I'm going to eat them. And also there's the whole issue about keeping farmers going and the cultural, the fact that they carry the culture in many ways. Less and less, so I've got a story about that. I was invited to this farm. I used to work with a lot of farmers and um, invited for Sunday lunch. We had chicken. It was really nice. And, I, uh, and there'd been a cockerel that had been very troublesome and kept them all the way. So they killed it. And I, I said to them, is this the cockerel? And they went, no, we threw that on the midden. This is from the supermarket. So there you go. So I, I, so you can tell by my hesitancy that I'm still kind of not immune to these pressures to become a vegetarian. So the Jains, of course, they will not eat anything that grows above the ground. So they, they don't eat berries, they don't eat bread, they do eat rice, I think. Well, I, I don't know, because I remember staying in this Jain place in, uh, uh, in Uti, in fact, in India, and they, I'm sure we had that South Indian stuff made of rice but anyway but i guess that is different they, they eat tubers and they eat things that grow under the ground and i guess the argument is that you're not killing anything if you take those stores of food although you are robbing the plant if you eat carrots and potatoes the plants actually saved that for itself thank you very much 
and now you come along and steal it. So it is complex, and it is a, an argument that I am not immune to. And I do. The other thing, of course, is ancestrally, my so my ancestors probably arrived in the UK with the uh, Yamiana people. Maybe said that wrong. Who came from Anatolia and who were herders, and so. And I live in a place where it's never been easy to grow crops. And my ancestors come from the north of Ireland, from Scotland, from the Scottish borders and Cumbria, which are bleak places, really, in, in many parts of them. I mean, there was grain grown. but So you could argue that I'm not very good at digesting carbohydrates. Uh, and so meat and dairy, I've got, I'm very lactose tolerant. So we're kind of designed for that. And the males of my family, particularly on the Scottish-Irish side, they just die of heart attacks. In the And, of course, I'm convinced that diabetes is a plague of too much sugar and diabetes and heart disease and strokes and Alzheimer's are probably all the same thing, and it's sugar poisoning. And, of course, complex carbohydrates are, you know, like bread and rice, are just the plant's way of storing the sugar, and as soon as they get into your body, they become a sugar. So... It's actually, I'm healthier when I keep my carbs down um, and I feel better. Um, so that's another argument about not get, becoming a vegetarian. But I realise I'm being pathetic here. So, and it is an, another, you know, you'd be if you were to criticise me, you'd be right there with my beloved daughters who I love to bits and who love me to bits as well. But, you know, it is a difficult one. Um, and, it, and if it wasn't difficult, it would be solved, wouldn't it? But uh, people may make the decision... Not to eat meat, I respect that. Not and to be vegans and not have any animal product at all, because and that's particularly because of farming and farming methods. And remember, my big hero is Dave Brock of Hawkwind, and he's vegan. So I'm I'm not against veganism. I'm not against it. I I can see the reasoning behind it, and I can see why people are vegetarians. But I can also see why people eat meat as well. And there we are. And I think Ted would have been with me, to be fair. Um, I think Ted had a respectful, broad view of nature, red in tooth and claw, that life involves death. And and I think, you know, just to finish off on that thing, we have this modern view. I mean, you know, if you were to go to tr indigenous tribes and say, you know, don't kill anything, I mean... You know, some, like we said, some do, but most of them would be like, well, we'll all die if we don't. So what are we going to do? So uh, that's what I think. I think it's complex, um, no doubt. More people will be offended. Don't be offended. There's a thing called debate, isn't there? It's not about, you said something I disagree with, you must die. You know, it's like, oh, you think that? Well, I don't think that. Let me try and persuade you. And let's, let's have debate rather than just cancelling people. But never mind. Okay. There we are. Bye-bye. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried to do the name company. I invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patreons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. 
And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron. You can download them as well, which is more difficult on podcasts and on YouTube. But if you want to become a patron, you get the double whammy of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you. Which is, and, and you know, I appreciate it. So you get my love and gratitude. And also, you get access to a big backlog of stories and members only stories. Every month, I do at least one members only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash. Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.